ask you please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. As you're turning there, let me remind you uh, what's going on in the book of Hebrews. The author of the book of Hebrews, we're not sure who it is. Certain people have had uh, suggested different ones, but uh, we don't know for sure who it is. But we do know that he is writing the first century uh, Christians who have come from a Jewish background. They have left their old Jewish ways and they become Christians. They're beginning to uh, encounter many uh, persecutions and they, they're beginning to question whether Christianity is really where they need to be and some are thinking about maybe going back to the old ways and thinking that that would, that would be better and uh, thinking that maybe the persecution they're, they're feeling is judgment from God because they've left the truth. Well, the author of Hebrews has been writing throughout and telling them no, no, you know what, if you go back to the old way, you're going to that that's inferior. Christ is superior in so many ways. He's a superior revelation. He's uh, superior to the angels. He's, uh, he's superior to Moses. He's the mediator of a superior covenant. And so why would you ever go back to the inferior ways? And he's going to continue some of that this morning. As we read from Hebrews chapter 9, understand that this is God's word, not just for the first century Jewish uh, Christians on the other part of the world, but for us who are predominantly or maybe exclusively Gentiles this morning here in Gainesville, Texas, the other side of the world. It is God's word for us too. And so out of respect and honor for God's word, if you're able, please stand with me as we read. Hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room there was a lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had a golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained a jar of, of manna, uh, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim uh, of, of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly uh, into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered, uh, the, entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing uh, by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are, not, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater uh, the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. 
He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences and acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, we've heard uh, quite often the story of the uh, early 16th century, the early 1500s, uh, a young monk named Martin Luther. Uh, we hear, we've told the story before of how uh, he had a very troubled conscience and struggled with uh, what he felt was a, a or what was for him a very guilty conscience. Um, he had a very strict upbringing, not only from uh, the teachers in the school where he went, but also uh, from his own parents. He had a very strict upbringing, and he was taught that God is a very strict judge and will judge your actions severely. We, we remember the, about his conversion when... Uh, uh, on his way from school to his home or home back to school one day, uh, he got caught in a big thunderstorm and a bolt of lightning struck a tree very near him and he was certain that it was God's judgment upon him for his own sinfulness. And he cried out to the patron saint, to his patron saint, uh, Saint Anne, help me and I'll become a monk. And here he was to his father's delight at that time preparing for the law but almost immediately after that, he was faithful to his promise to St. Anne, and he, he left the law school, and he entered into the monastery to become a monk. Well, in the monastery, um, you would think that it would be easy to be a Christian, right? And that's probably what Martin Luther was thinking. I, I will enter into the monastery and be a Christian, and... I will get away from all these things, things that cause so much guilt to come upon me. Um, There's one, one uh, R.C. Sproul did, uh, early on uh, in his ministry had access to this guy who was doing a doctrinal study and, and uh, he was interviewing men who were going into the ministry and, and that man found that something around 85% of men who entered the ministry, one of the main reasons they entered ministry is to uh, get away from all the temptation, to clear their consciences in a way. You think being a minister, you got to be good, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enter the ministry to be good. Well, it seems that Martin Luther might have thought about entering into the monastery and there, I mean, how much trouble can you get into in the monastery? You're separated from the world. You're separated from all of those temptations. Everyone around you is there for the same reason, and they're going to be good and right, and they're not going to disturb you so much that you step out of line. I mean, maybe you could envy uh, your brother's toast at breakfast. You know, you'd have to confess that. I was envious of his bread of toast. I was hungry and wanted more. I mean, how much trouble can you get into? But Martin Luther found that being in the monastery didn't necessarily help. 
It was in the monastery where his, his conscience was so, uh, felt so guilty and the, the heavy burden of his conscience. Uh, he, he, would, he would take this, this whip and beat himself with a whip trying to remove the temptations of his physical body. He would, he would go nights in the cold cell there in, in, in uh, Germany um, in his cold cell at night, he would be down below freezing, and he would refuse a blanket, thinking that by doing this sort of thing, he could purge his body from the evil thoughts of the world, and, and his thoughts would be right, and he could get away from the things that brought so much guilt upon him. And yet he still felt guilty. So much so that he would go into confession on a regular basis. All the monks there would go to confession. And, and most of them would go in 5, 10, 15 minutes in confession. But Martin Luther would regularly go into confession and spend an hour or two or three or four hours at times in confession to the priest, confessing all of the sins that he had been thinking about all this whole week. And he said that... He, after he left confession, he felt the burden lifted off of him because the priest had said, you're forgiven, I absolve you. But on his way back to his room, he would remember a sin that was not confessed. And all of the weight of that guilt came back on him. He had a guilty conscience for all of his sin. Now today, there's still a lot of guilt regarding sin. The, the world, and especially in America, we deal with it in certain ways. A, a lot of people deal with it by thinking, I will live a good life, and I will be good enough, and I think I've been good enough, and so my good works, uh, I don't feel guilty about things. Some people, and we see this in quite many places, they simply change the law of God and say, well, I know that's what this book, this old antiquated book tells us, but we, we know better than that anymore. And so we say, that's not really the law of God. In fact, if you say those things, you're evil. <laughs> so we see ways that people deal with their guilty conscience, uh, maybe by saying, I've been good enough, or simply change the law because we know we're not good enough. I want you to know that many in the church today still struggle with a guilty conscience. But that is really nothing new. We saw it in the time of Martin Luther, but we see it in the Old Testament as well. In fact, we see it from the very beginning when man and woman are in the garden. As soon as they rebel against God and do what he says not to do, what do they do? They feel guilty about it. And they run and they notice their nakedness and try to cover their nakedness. And they try to hide from God so that God won't see them. The guilt of their, of their sin is heavy upon them. And with the guilt of that sin upon them, the presence of God is too much for them to bear. They do not want the presence of God with their guilty conscience. The author of Hebrews here in this passage is talking about the guilty conscience that, that they had and that, and that we have. And he says in verse 9 here, talking about the old way and the old covenant and all the things of the old covenant he says it was all the things that they did and the sacrifices that were being offering, offered and the gifts that were there. says they were not able to clear the conscience of the worker. Uh, of, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. And so he's taking us back to the old way and showing us that uh, the old covenant with all of its things, it really was not, was not what was to come. 
in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, as we consider this, I want us to consider how the author of Hebrews deals with this. First of all, in uh, the first five verses, he talks about the structure of the tabernacle. But that's not his main point. He's going to go into much more of the main point. You're talking about the service that was rendered in the tabernacle. And then in verses 11 through 14, he's going to show us how in the new covenant with Christ is so much superior to that old way. Why would you ever go back to that? And so let's look at it. Let's look at what he has to tell us and about how we can truly get a clear conscience. Uh, and so first of all, he talks about the structure of the, uh, of the tabernacle. Now, let me remind you what a tabernacle was. A tabernacle, when the people were in the wilderness, they were dwelling in tents. And so they built, a, God tells Moses in uh, Exodus 25, 26, 27, says, I want you to build me a tent. And in that tent, uh, that's where I'm going to dwell, and I'll be right there among the people in, in this tent. And so he, he describes this tent, this tabernacle that God lived in. Um, in verse 2, we see a, a tabernacle was set up. In its first room, there was a lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread, which is called the holy place. And so within the tabernacle, within this tent, um, the, the first room that you go into, we find in, in Exodus 25, 26, and 27, the first room is called the holy place. And the holy place was 30 feet by 15 feet. Okay? Holy place, 30 feet by 15 feet. Within that place, within that first room that you go into, by the way, only the priest could go in there. Within that first room, there was what's called the, um, um, it, it was the lampstand. Now on this lampstand, we've seen them before, little menorahs. That's what this lampstand was like. It had uh, three branches on each side and then a, a lampstand right up the middle. So you had seven places where you could light uh, the lampstand for light. It was to be burning 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it was to be fueled with olive oil. The reason it was fueled with olive oil was that it didn't put off smoke. So there was pure light in the room. Now, what does this signify? Well, it's the holy place. It lights the way into the presence of God. That was the idea. This light uh, in, the, in uh, this candle stand or this uh, lamp stand that was in there is to light the way into God, right? to, to come to God, into God's presence. Secondly, he talks about um, the, this uh, table that was there. And on the table, there was this consecrated bread. There were 12 loaves of bread for the 12 tribes. And every Sabbath day, the priest would have to go in there and replace the 12 loaves. And the priests themselves would eat that. Well, what was that all about? Well, bread was that which sustained people's life. And it was to show that God is the one who sustains people's life. It was to represent that. And so the first room, we see this lampstand and this table uh, with bread. And then, verse 3, a second room in, this, in the structure of the tabernacle. By the way, the second room was behind a veil. So the first room, 30 feet deep, okay, 15 feet wide. The second room behind the veil was 15 feet deep, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. By the way. It was a cube, okay. And in this place, he goes on, 
Behind the certain second curtain, in verse 3, behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. Uh, this Ark contained uh, the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and some stones, uh, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim, uh, of, of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss this in detail right now. So he goes on to talk about the different uh, uh, structure of the tabernacle, the different things that are in there, and he says, but that's not my main point. I don't want to just talk about this. By the way, let, let me briefly pause here just a minute. The, um, the altar of incense, by the way, an altar there. They had coals on it and it was burning all the time. And whenever the priest would, they, they would put incense on it. Incense, if you've ever been, uh, years ago, Sam and I went to a, uh, a Catholic funeral in Florida and they had the censers going. And that place was filled with smoke from the censers and you could smell the aroma and everything. Well, they had censers here and this, this made a big smoke uh, come up uh, in there. Now, what that part of what that was all about, not all of what it was about, but part of what that was about is that the priest, of course, once a year on the Day of Atonement, had to go back behind that, and he would go into the presence of God. Now, the, the, the smoke from the incense would be there. Even though the priest had made sacrifice for his own sins, he wasn't, I mean, to, to stand in the, in the pure presence of God would consume him. And so the incense that was there in the smoke was somewhat to guard the priest from the purity of God. And so we, we can we could see that. Then he talks about the um, not only was there but the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and included in that was uh, a jar of manna, uh, Aaron's staff that it budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Um, these things which uh, God put in there to remind them of. Uh, who he was and his provision for the people and taking care of them. He had given them manna in the wilderness to sustain them. He gave them Aaron's staff that budded, representing the continuing uh, work of the priest on behalf of the people, and the stone tablets of the covenant where God tells them about the, uh, uh, what, what he requires of them, how they are to worship him. Um. Now, the, we know that the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, we all remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they find the Lost Ark, but we, we never have really found the Lost Ark. It was destroyed by the uh, Babylonians during the Babylonian captivity. We've never uh, seen it since. Um, on the Ark of the Covenant, um, there's what's called the mercy seat, the top of it, the covering, and that was where God supposedly rests. Uh, his glory would come down and rest on the top of that. It's called the Shekinah glory of God. And so that was what was behind this uh, big veil in the most holy place. Where, And then, then we go on from not only the, the description, the structure of the tabernacle, we see the service in the tabernacle. And this is more his point, what he's wanting to point out to them. Verses 6 through 10. What about the service in the tabernacle? Um, when everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer 
room to carry on their ministry. Entered regularly. The priest had to go on about this daily. They had to go in and make sure that the lamps uh, continued to burn on a daily basis. I told you 24-7. They had to make sure that there, was, that there was oil in those lamps on a daily basis. They had to go in and replace the showbread on a weekly basis. Their work was never really done. They had to go regularly to do this. Uh, verse 7, uh, we go on, uh, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, and, and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Only the high priest could go here, and that was only once a year on the Day of Atonement. The rest of the time, no one could go back there. And no one but the high priest could go there. And that was once a year. But he had to go every year on the Day of Atonement. Had to come back and do it every year. Um, then he goes on, verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. With an unclear conscience, we can't go into the presence of God. And he's saying, those acts, those things could not clear their conscience. Well, why not? Well, every year, they have to come back on the Day of Atonement and have a sacrifice made for them and maybe... After that day of atonement, they go, they have the sacrifice, they go away feeling pretty good. But then they're reminded, we've got to come back next year and do it again. Because that didn't quite suffice. If that had sufficed, it would be done with. But we've got to come back next year. And even when that is done, we don't have a way to an access before God. There is a veil there that blocks us off from that. We, we can't go there. And so every year when they would co go back or go away from the Day of Atonement, they must have been much like Martin Luther going back to his room feeling good after he confessed his sins, but then remembering, wait a minute, I still have sins. I didn't get that covered. There's, there's more out there. And, and I don't have access to God. All of this was set up to show you don't have access to God. Your sin is preventing you from getting access to God. Your sin, which brings a guilty conscience, is not dealt with in this. And the rituals and the requirements of the old covenant only display that there is still a separation from God. I can't go there. And so the external regulations, we see in verse 10, they, they, they don't help. <clears throat> then it goes on. The, the structure of the tabernacle, we see that in the first five verses. The service in the tabernacle, which was important and had to be done, but it did not clear the conscience of the worshiper. could not clear the conscience of the worshiper. And then he goes on, verses 14 through, uh, 11 through 14, he's saying, there is a perfect tabernacle and there is a perfect sacrifice. Verse 11, 
When Christ came as our high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. If you go back to um, chapter 6, I mean, excuse me, chapter 8, in chapter 8 we're told that Moses got the regulations from this. We can go back to Exodus 25, 26, and 27. We can see where God says to Moses, make it exactly after the pattern I tell you. Don't stray a bit from it. This is exactly the way it's to be done. Why? Well, it is to represent something else. It's to represent a different tabernacle of a different place. This tabernacle is physical and material. It's in this world, but it is not the true tabernacle. It is only a model of the true tabernacle in heaven where God is truly present, truly the most holy place, the more perfect tabernacle. Now, in this more perfect tabernacle, you remember, just briefly, the structure of the old tabernacle, the lights that were in there, the... the, uh, the uh, Lampstands was there with the seven different lamps on it, menorah, we would call it, lighting the way into the presence of God. More perfect tabernacle, the perfect tabernacle. Needs light to bring us into the presence of God. Where is that light? We see in John chapter 1, talking about Jesus, that his light has come into the world. And Jesus himself in John chapter 8 says, I am the light of the world. The tabernacle, the, the, in the tabernacle, the, uh, the, the lamp that is there is reminding us that there is one coming who would be the light of the world to show us into the presence of God. What about the table with the, with the bread that was on the table? The bread that the, the priest would eat would, to show that God would sustain us. And Jesus later on in, in, in John chapter 6 says, I am the bread of life. I'm the one who sustains you. That in the, in the uh, old, old covenant tabernacle pointed to me as the light of the world, pointed to me as the, as the bread of life. This is a greater tabernacle, not made, not man-made. It's not part of this creation, but it is a true tabernacle where Jesus is even right now. And he enters into it, we see in verse 12, he enters into this tabernacle, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves. By the way, when the priest would enter into the uh, most holy place, he had to go by shedding blood, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. But, but Jesus goes not by the blood of bulls and calves. This is so important. It's so important. We're going to see in about a month when we get to uh, Hebrews chapter, chapter 10. We see in verse, uh, chapter 10 verse 3, uh, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus didn't come by the means of blood of bulls and goats which couldn't couldn't, didn't really have any power in them themselves, but how does he enter into the most holy place? He enters not by the means of the blood of uh, goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus' own blood brings way into the very presence of God, and he does it 
as we see in, in chapter 7, verse 27, he did it once for all. Never repeated. When we have communion here on Sunday mornings, this is a table, not an altar. Okay? This is a table, not an altar. And so when we have the body of Christ and the blood of Christ here being a table and not an altar, it's not a place where he is to be sacrificed again and again. This is not what certain churches teach. Certain churches would teach that every time we come before the table, uh, uh, the mass, the altar, we're sacrificing Christ once again. He has been sacrificed once for all. That's a good thing. And so because he has been sacrificed once for all, it was effective, it was sufficient to bring him right into the presence of right into that most holy place, not one made with human hands, but the true one, right into the very presence of God in the heavenly tabernacle. What about the old covenant, verse 13? The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. It's just a physical thing, an outward thing. And he goes, how much more then with the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered, uh, offered himself unblemished to, unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. The blood of Christ cleanses our consciences. It's not our own work. It's not the work of the old covenant or those old sacrifices. None of that can truly cleanse your conscience. But when Christ died in the temple that was there at that time, there was still this veil there that separated the most holy place, the place where God's presence was, from all the people there where they would constantly be reminded, I can't get there. I can't get there because of my own guilty conscience. I can't get there because I disobeyed God's word. I can't get there. And when Christ dies, he sheds his own blood. That veil is torn from top to bottom. All those who are there can see it and see into that place. And the idea is now, now the, the, the access into God's throne, the access into God's presence has been, been made real so that you can come. No longer is this veil separating you from the presence of God. The blood of Christ is satisfied. The blood of Christ comes and it cleanses us from all the guilt of our sin. I don't know this morning about you when you when you lay down at night and you, you lay there, you've been able to occupy your mind all day with the uh, media, with the sounds and the reading and keep your mind occupied on other things, but you lay down at night and your mind begins to wander off to the things of God and you begin to think, wow, spent the whole day and I didn't even pray. I spent the whole day and my mind on other people and what I thought about them. Maybe some things I said, it wasn't right. And I know that, wow, how can I stand before God with this? 
and our consciences, our guilty conscience begin to weigh us down. We think, I gotta do better tomorrow. I gotta do better. One day I'm gonna stand before God. How am I gonna, how am I gonna do that? I don't want to have to do that with such a guilty conscience. <laughs> we begin to think what we can do to make it right. The burden of our guilt laid upon us once again, like Martin Luther going from confession back to his cell, remembering his sin. It's not by our works, though. It's not by our works that that veil is torn and access into God's throne room is made available. It is by the work of Christ. And when he shed his blood, that, that veil is rent. And true payment is made. And our sins are forgiven. And our consciences are made clean. In the hymn we're about to sing, it reminds us of this, reminds us of how we have access into God's presence with a clear conscience. It says, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear and guilt and shame. Because of Jesus' blood and his righteousness, we can stand without guilt and without shame and with a clean conscience. Let's pray.